Uh, Please stand for the reading of the Old Testament lesson from the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verses 9 through 11 and verse 17. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from the heartfelt advice. Do not forsake your friend, desire... Do not forsake your friend or your friend of, sorry, do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family, and do no do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes. Better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. Be wise, my son, and bring joy to my heart, then I can answer anyone who treats me with contempt as an iron sharpens an iron, so persons shall sharpen each other. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dot, for reading our lesson. Always appreciate the hillbilly accent uh, like that. It's always, uh, and it's great to be with you. Uh, can you believe it's the first weekend in October? It's hard to believe, and that finally this, the longest summer that I can remember in terms of the heat. Uh, has finally begun to die down, and we're praying for rain today and hoping for that. Uh, it is so good to, to be with you, and the anthem uh, was worth being here for, wasn't it? Just that anthem, to hear you sing that anthem. Uh, thank you so much, uh, not just for the music, uh, but for the message behind it. It's wonderful to hear people sing that you know believe what they're singing and what they're playing, and thank you for your affirmation today. If you have been with us uh, in the last eight weeks, I think since the beginning of the school year, around the second week in August, you know that we've been in this pretty lengthy series on Proverbs called Wise Up, and we're in the last two weeks uh, of this series. We've been seeking wisdom now for eight weeks, and we have agreed that we live in an age of wisdom overload where it seems that wisdom is somewhat elusive to us these days, but to date we've considered the correlation of wisdom to reverence, the correlation of wisdom to trust, uh, wisdom to work. We've thought about the correlation of wisdom to self-control and discipline, speech, humility, humor. And then last week we talked about the connection of wisdom to character or reputation. Next week, I'm going to complete the series with what I think is one of the best-known Proverbs, maxims. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when she is old, she will not depart from it. And I want to finish the series with a message on the correlation between wisdom and spiritual formation. I think that's key, especially with our confirmands and youth and Uh, youth and children's ministry, the correlation between wisdom and formation. But today, because of verse 17 that Dot read for us, I want to think just about one particular verse and think with you about the connection between wisdom and fellowship, wisdom and community. I think it's especially, I hope it's especially appropriate on this World Communion Sunday that started in 1933, by the way, the first World Communion Sunday in Pittsburgh, PA, 1933, in a little Presbyterian church by a pastor whose name was Dr. Hugh Carey, and we celebrate that together literally with millions upon billions of people across the globe today. 
So I want to think about one verse. As iron sharpens iron, so one man, one woman sharpens another. The image of iron sharpening iron may not mean much to you, but it meant a great deal to the writer in Proverbs, in the wisdom literature, because in ancient days, iron sharpening iron was sort of a metaphor, a word picture for the importance of camaraderie or, or, or the necessity of, of sharing life together. Genesis 2.18 is right, men, women, we were not made to live alone. And that's not just a comment about marriage and being single, that's a comment about community. We are not solo, we are made to live in community. And so the image of iron sharpening iron was common in that day uh, because metal tools like swords and knives would often, with the passage of time and use as they do today, become dull and blunt, and, and so they're no longer usable. And so what they would do was, uh, what they would do would be to, to sharpen the face of one tool by rubbing it up against another similar tool so that two knives, we still do this sometimes, two knives grinding against each other would actually sharpen both tools so that they could continue to serve the same purpose with a greater effectiveness. And so by the, the friction of frequent contact, they would then regain their cutting edge. Without that, without rubbing together, they would easily fall into disuse and disrepair. And so Solomon is using what would have been a very common image, a common analogy as an object lesson for community. And we have a word for it in the Greek language. In the Greek tongue, it's the word koinonia. Many of you know this word. It literally means communion. Koinonia means joint participation. It means shared, uh, sharing life in common. And it's interesting, when you stroll through the New Testament, you'll find that word koinonia no less than 20 times in the New Testament. The first time you see it is in Acts 2.42. You remember Acts 2 is where the wind and the fire of the Holy Spirit comes upon 120, and all of a sudden, 120 become a megachurch. There are 3,000 that are taken in in one day who are baptized, who profess their faith in Jesus after Peter's Pentecost sermon. Must have been a pretty good sermon. And so 3,000, once 120, and in Acts 2.42, Luke, who, who wrote the book of Acts as a sequel gives us, in verse 42, the fourfold discipline of the early church. What, what did they do after the fire and wind? He tells us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, that's what we're doing right now. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, sacraments, to prayer, and to fellowship. Fellowship. Koinonia. It's interesting that in the fourfold discipline of the church, fellowship is mentioned, this rubbing up against one another, this shaking a hand, passing the peace, being together, shared partnership, is not optional, apparently, for disciples of Christ. It's standard. In fact, maybe you've discovered, as have I, that it's absolutely necessary if we're to maintain an edge in regard to our discipleship. 
I think it was Andrew Murray, the great South African missionary, who said, our love to God is measured by our everyday fellowship with others and the love it displays. That's koinonia. Now, that's exactly what Jesus had in mind in Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, verse 20, when he said to his friends, look, where two or more of you are gathered in my name, I'll be with you. And we've got more than two or three. Uh, We've got a lot of people here, but when you gather in his name, he promises that he'll be with us. And, And that doesn't mean that he'll abandon you when you're by yourself. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that revelation, epiphany, you can expect encounter with Jesus in the fellowship. And we ought to expect that. In fact, without koinonia, without what we're doing here, we we become dull and blunt in our witness. We become lethargic and complacent in our mission. We, We lose our edge without this. A few weeks ago, we were about to process in for the 815 service, and I was back in the back, and I was just kind of watching you all, the fellowship, and I can usually sort of gauge by the decibel level of the fellowship at the beginning of the service what kind of service it's going to be, and I was watching it and enjoying it, and I was standing next to Gabriel Sleenhoff, who is a senior in high school. He was the crucifer that day, and he was holding the cross, and I looked at him, and I said, I love church. And he said, good thing. (laughs) It's a smart answer. I mean, the boy's going to Yale. He's got some wisdom about him. But without this, we, we, we lose our edge. The writer of Hebrews, this little epistle in the back of your New Testament, saw the same kind of thing happening in the second, third generation of the movement, and he gives a word of warning in chapter 10, Hebrews verse 23. Listen to what he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to spur one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I want you to notice on the screen that I've italicized that word spur for a reason. In the Greek language, the word for spur literally means to provoke one another or to irritate one another, to pester. Now, I, I've noticed in every congregation that I've been privileged to serve, that there's a handful of people in every congregation who have this gift of irritating, of provoking, pestering. Now, I'm mainly talking about 815 and 945. None of you, of course, <laughs> talking about that other crowd that was here earlier. Some people see their primary responsibility, their primary gift in the church to pester the pastor. And sometimes... Sometimes the pastor pesters the people. Now, that word, spur, pester, has a negative connotation, but what's interesting is it's used in this context in a very positive sense. You know why? Because the role of the church is to do both, to pastor and to pester, to comfort the afflicted 
and to afflict the comfortable, to pastor the oppressed and to pester the oppressor, to irritate, to, to, to provoke the complacent in order that, not that you make them mad, <laughs> but so that you produce love and good works. There's a positive part to that. Now, some of the Hebrew followers that this was written to were neglecting the gathering. They were neglecting the koinonia, the fellowship. And the reason for their neglect is not spelled out in chapter 10, but later the writer gives us a clue. Some of them were afraid of persecution, and rightly so. We've been in some places, some of you, in Beirut. We've been in some places in Syria. We've been in some places in the Middle East, in Amman, Jordan, where it is a fearful proposition to live out your faith. So some were neglecting koinonia because they were afraid of being harmed. Some were concerned about heresy that was happening in the community of faith in the second and third. Some were concerned that the body wasn't being relevant anymore to the culture. So they weren't coming. And some, and this never happens today, some were really concerned about leadership tension. Uh, that happened a lot in the first century. It doesn't happen anymore, but it happened then. And then there were those who were just frankly discouraged by the delay of Christ's return. They thought he was coming right away and he didn't come. What I've noticed is there are all sorts of reasons for neglecting community. But the problem is when I do that, I lose my edge. I lose my spiritual vision when I neglect this. And so do you. I was reading a Mission Insight report. You know that Mission Insight is a company that comes in and explores your context, the area, the geography that you're trying to reach or speak to. And they look at the context by asking these survey questions and then they give you data about the people that you're trying to reach. And this is very interesting. I got the data and the first part of it concerned the interest level of the people in a 10 mile radius of Brentwood. And the interest level in terms of faith community. And I noticed that between 2012 and 2017, the interest level had gone down eight percentage points. I'm not talking about interest in Brentwood. I'm talking about interest in the church with the big C. It had gone down from 2012, 44% interest to 36% in five years. Reasons given were these. 34%, we don't have time. 24%, there's no good faith community in our area. 20% said the demands of raising children were too busy. We have too many irons in the fire. I noticed that in regard to personal faith, 51% said, I don't think faith is relevant to my life anymore. 35% said we're unsure about what we believe in terms of God. 35% also said we don't believe in God. In regard to the church, this is a 10-mile radius, 63% said we're too judgmental. 55% said we don't trust organized religion. 54%, and this one hurts, don't trust preachers. 
religious leaders. 49% said we're disillusioned with religion. And 35% said the church is too focused on money. And I read through all that, and I realized perception is reality to a degree. Sometimes that's right. But as I was reading that, I was also recalling another survey, and this comes from the first century Greco-Roman culture of what they said about the church. First century. They worship a dead man who was cursed on a tree. They're exclusive. They're unpatriotic. They won't bow the knee to Caesar. That's what they said. They're cannibals. Their liturgy talks about going to a table and eating flesh and drinking blood. They're cannibals. Or they're, they're having orgies because there's that Scripture about love feast. And so that perception was their reality. But to some degree, I have to tell you, that was propaganda. When you don't want to participate in a community, I've discovered that just about any excuse will do. Now, I'm going to tell you something you may not want to hear. I did a little survey of our children recently, and I discovered that 95% of your children want M&Ms and Skittles for dinner. (laughs) I took a vote. That's what they want. But the better part of wisdom tells me that may... (laughs) I think we ought to have at least one Wednesday night with an M&M dinner. Don't get me wrong, but... Maybe that's not the best idea, but we need to know perception. You know why? Because you may be the only one who can change that stereotype. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever actually reads. You may be the only Jesus that some people ever actually know. And I've discovered one thing for sure. We can't impact or influence the world by isolating ourselves from it. To accomplish the mission on that wall outside, we have to engage the world. And by the way, you know this, God doesn't hate the world. God loves the world. He made it. He died for it. He sustains it still. God loves the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever, whosoever, love that word, believes should have life. And so if the church is to be the heart of the community, as we say, to foster relationships of love with Jesus and each other, I can't do that by disengaging from it. Because I realize that the same world that desires sometimes to be distant from God desperately, desperately needs God. But they have to see it to believe it. That's the way it worked with me when I was a kid. I had to see it. I didn't believe it until I saw it in Mrs. McKinney and Mrs. Mullins, my Sunday school teachers, Lynn and Carol Clapp, my youth counselors, I'd heard it all my life. But until you see it, you don't buy it. And that's why we need koinonia. That's why we need community. I I think a powerful example of what koinonia can look like 
can easily be found in a study of the New Testament of one phrase. This phrase, it's over and over again, one another. You see that? One another. You, you can find it all over the Scripture, Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another. Chapter 12, verse 10 again, honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Be kind to one another. Compassionate to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage. Offer hospitality. Love one another. That's how you keep your edge. It's not through self-service. It's through one anothering. That's the way it is. It's iron sharpening iron. Even when there's friction between brothers and sisters. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but have you ever seen that God can actually use the friction as traction for the mission if you don't run away from it? And the problem sometimes is what we're running from, we run right to in some other place. You can't give up meeting together. The hospitality, the sense of koinonia, someone said it like this, the church is kind of like Noah's ark. It's a stinky mess inside, but if you get off the boat, you'll drown. If you have God as your father, you need God. You need the church as your mother. It's not always in the preaching or the music. It's in the rubbing up against one another's shoulders that we find a cutting edge within us again. Even, even when a sister or brother rubs you the wrong way, at least you're still rubbing. It's koinonia. Let me finish with this. One of my heroes is Eugene Peterson. You remember Eugene Peterson who wrote this amazing paraphrase of the New Testament called The Message. Uh, we, have a, we have a member of our Wednesday morning study. He brings the message. John, you bring it with you every time, and we love you for it. He's also written a paraphrase of the entire Old Testament. He, he made a comment about what we're talking about today, and I want to share it with you. Eugene said, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life. There can be no obedience in following Jesus. There can be no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and the embrace of community. And then he says this, I am not myself by myself. I am not myself by myself. I've been thinking about that all week, and it occurred to me that I'm most myself when I'm with you. I'm most me when we're together. I think that's true of you. Oh, love. 
you sang. When we're together, Jesus is in the house. When two or three are gathered in my name and Casey prays, Jesus is in the house. (laughs) When two or three are gathered and you're playing these instruments and singing, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Jesus is beside you. He's never far from you. I'm most myself when I'm with you, and I think that's true of you. It happens through one anothering, koinonia. I tell you, in a world that is dumbing us down (laughs) into isolation and seclusion into the last fortress of our world, which is in our own home, we need to sharpen the edge to wise up. And it starts with koinonia, iron sharpening iron, and Jesus is present. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.